You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Hello, and thanks for listening to Grounded. We're back this week with Ken Niles, Odo's Assistant Director for Nuclear Safety. A few weeks ago, Ken gave us the historical background on the Hanford nuclear site in southeast Washington. If you haven't already, please listen to our first Hanford episode, The Atomic Man. Today, we're diving into post-production Hanford and the transition to cleanup. In an interesting twist of fate, just days after recording this interview, Hanford declared a site area emergency after a tunnel storing contaminated waste partially collapsed. We activated our agency operations center in response, and we've been monitoring the incident. Stay tuned to Grounded Speed for a special bonus episode about this Hanford emergency and Oregon's response to it. So at the end of our last Hanford episode, we were in the late 80s. Hanford had stopped plutonium production. What was next for the site? Next was uh, kind of an awkward transition into cleanup. And a lot of uncertainty, especially over those first, actually it turned out to be the first decade, in terms of whether or not cleanup would be it for the Hanford site from that point forward, or whether or not there might be some additional defense production missions. I mean, Hanford had been producing plutonium for about 45 years, and there was a lot of pride among the workforce that what they were doing was important for our national security. And some folks thought of the cleanup as, you know, a lessening of, of, what, of their importance. And there was also a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not there would be funding on a continual basis year after year for what at the time was thought to be a 30-year cleanup. So on May 15, 1989, the U.S. Department of Energy signed a cleanup agreement with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the state of Washington. It's called the Tri-Party Agreement is the kind of the nickname for this document. And it laid out a 30-year schedule for cleanup at Hanford. And there was a lot of to-be-determines. I mean, there was a lot of milestones in terms of you will do this by this date. A lot of it was related to the paperwork aspect of cleanup. Under cleanup laws, there's a, a lot of investigation in terms of what the problem is. You analyze various alternatives, you select some alternative, then you begin to do the cleanup. So there was a lot of milestones related to that, especially. And then in terms of when some of those actual cleanup aspects might get done, there was a lot of to be determined. So the first tri-party agreement said cleanup done in about 30 years. We are about 30 years now, so you're saying they must be about done, huh? It'd be nice. It'd be really <laughs> nice if they were right. But it's, uh, and it is so difficult to anticipate how much longer we have. Uh, when you look at some of the project schedules based on a anticipated level of funding, you know, we're going to be involved with Hanford Cleanup into the 2060s or 2070s. So there's a long, long way to go. So you mentioned there's some resistance to transitioning to cleanup. Can you tell me a little more about that? There was an expectation by a lot of people, and a hope by a lot of people, the the workforce, the local communities, that Hanford would still have some type of nuclear production mission. When Hanford shut down production, really all of the more than 100 sites around the country that had some piece of nuclear weapons development, production, testing, all of them shut down within about a year or two of the same time. But still there was the expectation we would continue to need nuclear weapons and we would need to continue to 
be able to produce plutonium for nuclear weapons. But there was a definite realization that the facilities that have been doing this at Hanford, at Savannah River in South Carolina, at elsewhere, you know, they were old, they were antiquated, they were inefficient, they needed a lot of work. And so there was an expectation there would be a new complex of nuclear weapon production facilities. And in, uh, in 1990, just a year into the cleanup, the Secretary of Energy at that time coined the term Complex 21. So the next generation of nuclear weapon production facilities. And based on you know, some different plans, Hanford either was or was not expected to be a part of that. There was also the recognition there was a whole lot of cleanup work to be done at Hanford. One thing that kind of complicated this at Hanford was that they had a test reactor called the Fast Flux Test Facility. And it was a large reactor. It was the most modern reactor in the Department of Energy. It was not a nuclear weapons production reactor. It was a test reactor for the Breeder Reactor Program. By the time the reactor had been built and operated, the Breeder Reactor Program had been canceled. And what, what is the Breeder Reactor Program? Breeder Reactor is a, a type of reactor where the fuel that is used basically generates new fuel. And so that you're able to, to run it and rerun it and continually run it using this fuel that has been regenerated within the reactor. So this, this test reactor, if somebody were to looking at a map of Hanford, is it one of the lettered reactors or is it a different area on the map? It is not. It is, uh, uh, if you look at the, the map of the reactor, it's in the southern part of the site. It's south of the 200 areas, uh, all by itself in a very small complex. So it wasn't on the river? It was not on the river. Uh, it operated so it, it uh, when it was ready to operate, and again, the breeder reactor program had been canceled, it operated for a decade or so with a variety of kind of test missions and, and did a few different things. But as we got into, again, this start of cleanup end of production mission, a lot of people looked at that reactor and said, we have a perfectly viable reactor. It's got to be able to do something. And there was a search for missions that lasted uh, 10 years, 12 years into the cleanup. That was a distraction in a lot of ways to the cleanup. It was a, there were tens of millions of dollars a year being used to maintain the reactor in a standby state, money that was otherwise earmarked for the cleanup at Hanford. Uh, there were folks that were strongly anti-nuclear that thought that it should be shut down regardless. The supporters were looking for a variety of missions, and there was a couple different things that came up at, at various times. One was the production of tritium, which is a key component of America's nuclear weapons. Another was the production of a certain isotope of plutonium, plutonium-238, which is used as a kind of a space battery is its most uh, well-known use, where it, it generates heat, uh, small amounts of heat, and can be used to power satellites that go far from the sun where they can't pick up the sun. I was kind of hoping you were going to say lightsabers. Uh, no lightsabers. Mm. No lightsabers. Not yet. And the third mission potential mission for the Fast Flux Test Facility was the production of medical isotopes. And this is the one that, that certainly generated the most support and the most contention in some ways. Uh, it became a very emotional uh, public series of public meetings around the region where 
where cancer survivors were, were talking about the need for medical isotopes. Canada was and is the primary producer of medical isotopes in the United States. They had, at the time, some older reactors that were kind of at the limit of their production abilities. The problem with the fast flux test facility was it was just simply too big of a reactor to economically do any of these missions or a combination of missions. And so there were a number of studies that looked at how to maybe make this happen. They would come out unsuccessful. There would be another attempt to do a new study. And, and eventually it was determined that there wasn't really a viable economic mission for this reactor and it was shut down to the strong chagrin still of a lot of supporters uh, of that reactor. So once they got to that point where they realized there wasn't a future of production at Hanford, how did they get started on cleanup? How do you even begin to tackle a project like that? Well, while all this was going on, there was still the start to cleanup. I mean, there, was, there is a process in federal environmental laws as to how you do it. And I mentioned it earlier briefly, is that you have to look at the problem you have, investigate the contamination, the ex scope, the extent of the contamination, look at viable alternatives for how to deal with this waste, and then you select a choice and you begin the cleanup. So when you look at the start of cleanup at Hanford, because they had to go through that process, the, the cleanup beginning was pretty slow. And there, there is an option for expedited cleanup where they can basically bypass some of that paperwork when they have a very obvious problem and begin doing the work. And they did that uh, to some extent at Hanford. The first cleanup project under the Tri-Party Agreement was the Hanford Vehicle Maintenance Area which when you think of uh, all the different contaminants and problems at Hanford, that's not where you would necessarily think would be the first priority. Right. But again, it, it allowed, it was a, such a smaller scale problem that allowed this, this paperwork process to be, to be done. So on my first tour of the Hanford site in January of 1990, uh, with all these expectations for what these huge facilities at Hanford will look like and driving out on the site, our first stop was the vehicle maintenance area which was a pretty big letdown to have them point out areas where there were paint spills and antifreeze spills. And the disappointment didn't last very long because then we did get into the main part of the site and saw the, the facilities that, you know, regardless of your views on Hanford, it, it is a just a fascinating place to see. In 1990, you made it to the vehicle maintenance area and it was a little bit of a letdown. But then you got to the real part of Hanford. So what was the real extent of the problem? So it's, this is probably one of the hardest things for people to understand because the, the extent of the cleanup is so massive that there are so many different things they have to do. There is contaminated soil. There's contaminated groundwater. There are buildings full of, of plutonium and uranium and all kinds of different uh, radioactive materials and chemicals. There were nine plutonium production reactors uh, just there's this whole variety of things, each of which presents its own challenge. But if we go back to the start of cleanup in 1989, just kind of look at, at big picture of the things that existed. In the processes to produce plutonium, they generated huge amounts of liquid waste, most of which they just dumped into the soil. 
So they had huge amounts of contaminated soil sites, hundreds of different soil sites. They had about 80 square miles of contaminated groundwater as a result with a mix of different radioactive materials and chemicals and overlapping plumes. The worst of this waste, this liquid waste, they knew they couldn't just dump into the soil, so they dumped into underground storage tanks. And when those tanks got full, they built new tanks. And when they got full, they built new tanks. And that cycle repeated itself over and over. So by 1989, the start of cleanup, 177 underground storage tanks at Hanford holding about 60 million gallons of high-level waste. And how old was the oldest of those tanks? They dated back to World War II, 1944. So tanks that had been holding you know, thermally hot, chemically caustic, highly radioactive waste uh, for, at that point, decades. And now we're almost 30 years beyond that as well. And this continues to be the biggest challenge at Hanford is dealing with this tank waste. But there was a lot of other things as well that they had to, to deal with at Hanford. Hundreds of burial grounds. I mean, you, you just you think of dump sites or industrial problems, and you think of one or two or three areas maybe. And again, at Hanford, these liquid waste disposal sites, there were hundreds of them. Burial grounds, hundreds of them. I mean, the site is so large at 586 square miles, they had a lot of room in which to operate and deal with, with their waste and in, in the methods by which they dealt with it. Did they keep pretty good track of where the burial sites were and what was in the burial sites? Yes and no. Some, some of the burial sites, they have pretty good records. Some they didn't. Uh, and the older, the older the burial ground, the less documentation in general terms sure. um, for the most part. And, and there were still a lot of anecdotal stories about people out in the middle of the night, you know, burying things and dumping things. There has been, throughout this entire cleanup process, people have walked the entire site at a grid level, looking for ground disturbances that didn't show up in the records, looking to find these hidden burial grounds or hidden way sites. And they, had, they did find a lot. Uh, the expectation is they found it all. We don't know whether that'll be the case or not until, you find, until you find one more. So again, in 1989, they were still disposing of liquid waste. Millions of gallons of liquid waste a year were coming out of the processing facilities to maintain them, coming out of the laboratories, were generated initially during cleanup in some cases. So they were still making the problem worse. Even during cleanup. Even during the first few years of cleanup. Uh, There's... A huge number of contaminated buildings, over 500. So you've got the nine nuclear reactors, the production reactors. There are five chemical processing facilities, so these big what are called canyon facilities, in which they did all the chemical processes to extract small amounts of plutonium. And each step of those generated waste, a lot of which was held up inside those buildings in the storage tanks and the piping and the ventilation systems. They had laboratories, they had uh, some buildings where they had fires and, and uh, various other accidents involving radioactive materials that were very heavily contaminated. Uh, the groundwater we mentioned. And then they had a couple of other situations that, uh, again, 
initially at the, the early stages of cleanup became somewhat of a distraction, if you will, because they had to deal with the safety aspect of it before they could really deal with necessarily the cleanup part. So when they generated spent nuclear fuel at Hanford through running the uranium fuel through the reactors, and then the next step was to process it. There was about 2,100 metric tons of spent fuel that was not processed to remove the plutonium. Instead, and it's, it, it was run as part of the last reactor and reactor which produced power and plutonium. There were periods of time when they didn't need the plutonium, but they needed the power. So they ran the reactor, they generated this fuel. When they removed it from the reactor, they put it in these concrete water-filled basins adjacent to two other reactors at Hanford. And it sat there for several decades. And fairly early on, within the first couple of years of cleanup, uh, one of Oregon staff started asking questions about earthquake vulnerability of these basins because they had leaked in the past. And as they began to look at it, they, they determined that even a moderate earthquake might split apart the seams of these basins, drain the water, and when that fuel would come into contact with the air, it was pyrophoric, it would ignite. And so you would have burning metal that would be spewing plutonium and other radioactive materials across the Northwest. So it was a very scary uh, accident scenario possibility. And it quickly became not only among the priorities, the top two or three priorities at Hanford, it became among the top two or three priorities at all the DOE sites around the country, despite some of those other unique problems that some of the other sites had as well. So you're, you're trying to go forward in this cleanup process and then everything comes to a halt because you find this sudden emergency situation that you have to take care of immediately. And in this case, that helped prompt the urgency to remove that fuel from the river, remove the fuel from the basins to dry it, uh, to get it away from the river and in a, a fairly safe long-term storage configuration, which... I'm not sure how I feel about fairly safe. <laughs> which did not go without, without some problems. Uh, one other issue, just in terms of the extent of the problem, at the, the last of the stops for the plutonium at hand for the plutonium finishing plant, where they did a lot of the chemical treatment and, and uh, the development of the plutonium... <laughs> When they stopped that facility, when they shut that facility down, they didn't do it in an orderly manner. They didn't stop the input at one end and let it come out the other end. They just stopped everything in place. So they had an estimated 18 tons of plutonium-bearing material in a variety of different forms, and solids and liquids and solvents and different things throughout this facility. And it took, when we start talking about progress a little bit later, it took 20-some years to stabilize that facility before they could begin to demolish it. 20 years? 20 years. And they thought that the whole cleanup was going to take 30. Right. Wow. Right. So you mentioned it was a staff member from Oregon that kind of raised the red flag about these basins. How did Oregon get involved in the cleanup? Oregon became involved with Hanford uh, a little bit peripherally uh, a few years before production ended. Uh, in the early 1980s, uh, we recognized that there was a lot of transportation of radioactive waste to and from the state, uh, to and from Hanford, that went through Oregon, 
and we really didn't know a whole lot about those shipments. And so the, the legislature eventually in 1981 passed a, a statute that created a radioactive material transport permit program. So that was kind of our first real involvement with Hanford. And again, that was a little bit peripherally that that, that happened. Keeping an eye on the waste that was leaving that was coming through our state. Right. In 1986, there was a couple of different things that happened that, uh, that got not only Oregon, but a lot of other people involved in Hanford. So under pressure from citizen groups and a few others, DOE released, the U.S. Department of Energy released 19,000 pages of they weren't classified documents, but they also weren't really available. And they explained a lot of the details of Hanford's operating history in the 40s and 50s and 60s in terms of its releases of radioactivity to the environment. And that focused a great deal of attention by really the whole Northwest community in terms of what Hanford had done in the past. And Oregon became a part of uh, of a group looking at those documents and trying to assess what the impact might have been. That eventually led to a decade-long study that, that uh, throughout the 1990s that basically looked to recreate, you know, on a computer model, uh, what those releases were and what the impacts were. Also that year, in 1986, the U.S. Department of Energy released an environmental impact statement that really for the first time, although they'd done one previously, this really for the first time laid out the extent, the partial extent, of the cleanup challenge that eventually would have to be taken. Although at that point in 1986, there was no expectation that Hanford production would stop within three years. And so those things in 1986, there was also the, the uh, accident at the Chernobyl reactor. There was some similarities. There was a lot of differences. There were a few similarities between the reactor at Chernobyl in Hanford's last operating reactor, and that again brought some focus. Uh, it engaged uh, Oregon Senator Mark Hatfield at the time. He started looking at that. Our agency started looking at that. Uh, we came up with a recommendation that the reactor eventually be shut down, uh, which did occur. Uh, not certainly based on our recommendation only. There was a lot of other factors in play. When the cleanup began, Oregon felt very strongly that we had to be involved. I mean, the Columbia River had been impacted before in the 1950s and 60s. There was certainly the prospect the Columbia River could be threatened again, if not in the near future, in the distant future, if the cleanup was not conducted properly. And we're just 35 miles downriver. Just 35 miles downriver. And fortunately at that time, we did have Senator Hatfield in a position of authority within the Senate Appropriations Committee and our initial funding came through action by Senator Hatfield to get Oregon funding, funding to become involved in, in oversight of the cleanup. And we built a staff over the years. One of the things that from the very beginning is we had a, a hydrogeologist, a groundwater expert, because the expectation was that if Oregon was to be impacted, it would most likely occur through a release of contaminants into the groundwater that would connect to the Columbia River. So groundwater cleanup has really been one of the main focuses that Oregon has pushed on throughout the entire part of the cleanup. And initially, we were one of the lone voices talking about cleanup. The state of Washington, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, I mean, they had the whole cleanup to look at and prioritize. And 
groundwater initially did not rise to that level of interest for them over some of these other issues. Mm. Uh, but eventually, within a few years, there was more of a focus on groundwater. And it wasn't just Oregon pushing for it. It was local folks along the Columbia River. It was the Native American tribes, all kind of pushing towards more of a realization and a recognition and some action to deal with the groundwater contamination. All right, so we've been focusing on groundwater. We want to make sure our river is protected. I want to hear a little more about these tanks. You said there are 177 tanks on the property. How do you begin to tackle tanks full of highly radioactive, volatile waste? And this is one of those other issues that also was somewhat derailed because of immediate safety concerns. There's a lot to talk about with the potential treatment, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But just initially, within just a few months of the start of cleanup, there was recognition that some of the waste in the tanks was in such a condition that you might have an explosion or a fire within one of these tanks, which could then cause a release into the atmosphere. So it was, it was a really big deal for a couple of years. So initially, in October of 1989, there was a five-year-old report released about ferrocyanide added to a number of tanks to help pull out cesium and strontium several decades earlier. And, a, and a, basically questions raised about whether or not ferrocyanide within the tanks might be flammable or explosive. And within a few more months, there was additional thoughts about hydrogen generated into the tank because just of the with the the decay of the radioactive materials and just the interaction of the chemicals there is hydrogen gas generated in many uh, if not all of the tanks but in some of the tanks there was a great deal of hydrogen being generated and there was concern that if you had enough hydrogen in enough of a concentration in the headspace of a tank that a lightning strike some other type of initiating event could then lead to an explosion or fire. So one tank in Hanford became well known as the burping tank. And it was uh, tank SY-101. So it was in the SY tank farm. There was a heavy crust uh, within the tank that trapped the hydrogen into the bottom of the tank. So the hydrogen was being generated. It was kind of trapped from getting into the headspace of the tank and then vented out through filters. But when it generated enough hydrogen, it would push its way and flip the crust. And then you would have a large release at one point of hydrogen into the headspace of the tank before it could be dispersed through the filters and out. So there was a period there during these ventings or burpings mm -hmm. where the tank was very vulnerable to, to a very severe accident. They had one situation in September of 1992. They had such a large venting. It was one of the largest they'd known. It's a burp, Ken. You can, call, you can say it. A burp. <laughs> that the waste levels in the tank dropped 10 inches in 10 minutes. And they had a large heavy-duty pipe that was holding instruments in the tank that was bent, severely bent, because of the force of this. And it prompted the deputy manager of the site at the, at the Hanford site at the time to say, we aren't in, co in control of the tank, it's kind of in control of us. So that was a big deal. And other tanks were creating hydrogen as well, not to this dramatic effect. So what they eventually did with this tank is they installed a giant mixer. 
and they slowly would stir and mix the tank. So the degeneration of hydrogen was still occurring. It just was no longer being trapped beneath that crust and doing this, this burping. It didn't take all that long once that was finally installed in July of 1993 for that problem to be resolved. But again, there was these other problems with, with hydrogen in other tanks, the ferrocyanided, uh, something called red oil, which was an organic that was a con uh, concern, a criticality within a tank where it would have a self-generating nuclear reaction. That didn't happen. That was a concern <laughs> that it would happen. In 1991, then Oregon Congressman Ron Wyden, who was really concerned about all this was going on, uh, created legislation that became known as the Wyden Watch List. And initially, 52 of the 177 tanks were put on this watch list, which when you went on the watch list, it meant there were certain safety provisions and operational restrictions in what they could do with those tanks until they eventually cleared off each of those different issues at each of those tanks. What's an example of something that would get you on the widened watch list? SY-101 with the hydrogen was definitely on there. Right, so if you burp, you're on the so watch list. So if you burp, you're on the watch list. Okay. So all the hydrogen generation, the ferrocyanide, uh, there was organic nitrates, again, a concern about flammability, and then criticality. So there were four main categories. Eventually, they closed every one of those out. And what they typically did was U.S. Department of Energy would document what they've done, what the situation is, what they've discovered, send that to Representative and then Senator Wyden. He would often consult with our office, uh, and then eventually a tank would be removed from the watch list. The watch list was finally closed in August 2001. So it took almost 11 years to resolve all those tank safety issues. And just because those safety issues have been resolved, it doesn't mean that the problem with the tanks has gone away. Far from it. And we've had additional problems as well, not quite to the dramaticness of, of the burping tank and things like that. It, most of the issues now related to the tanks have been related to potential leaks or active leaks and getting the waste out of the tanks before that can happen. So the 177 tanks, 149 are a single shell of carbon steel in concrete. That's the older style. Beginning in the late, or the late 1970s, early 1980s, they built 28 double shell tanks, which have two shells of carbon steel. So are newer and, and you do have that extra layer of protection. In the 1950s, they had discovered some of the tanks had already been leaking. And the, the number that they look at now is 63 of the single shell tanks are either known or suspected to have leaked. So to try and lessen the impact of that, all the easily pumpable liquid was removed from all of the single shell tanks into the double shell tanks. So there's still, in some cases, 10, 20, 30,000 gallons of liquid in a single shell tank that's somewhat held up in the crust and the salt cake. Still there, still potentially to be leaked, but they just can't easily pump it out. In the meantime, they have also started retrieving all of the waste from tanks on a tank-by-tank -tank basis. And this has taken years and years and many, many hundreds of millions of dollars to develop the technology to begin the process 
of removing the waste from the single shell tanks to the double shell tanks. Uh, they have, they're working on tank number 17 at this point of 149. So of those 16 that have been emptied, uh, empty needs to be explained as well because empty doesn't mean zero. Uh, there's a certain percentage of, of, uh, of waste that is allowed to be remaining in the tanks to still call it empty. So they've been doing this process. They've, they've developed some tremendously creative technology to deal with what is a very difficult problem in removing, in some cases, near solids or ketchup consistency materials out of tanks and pumping it, in some cases, a mile or more away to another tank to be stored in the double shell tanks. They are running out of, tank, of space in the double shell tanks. And in the past few years, we've lost a double shell tank because it started leaking from its inner shell into its outer shell, did not link into the environment. Uh, but that tank is now out of service. So we're down to 27 double shell tanks. And the double shell tanks, those aren't the, the end of this waste, right? That's just an intermediate storage. Just an in, just in interim storage. So uh, we have those 27 double shell tanks. They hold about 28 to 30 million gallons of waste. We've got 20-some million gallons of waste still in the single-shell tanks. And the plan is to vitrify it. And vitrification is a technology that basically mixes the waste with glass-forming materials under heat to produce a liquid, liquid high-level waste glass, if you will, or a liquid glass. It would be poured into stainless steel canisters where it would harden. It'd still be radioactive, but it would be solid. Solid. It would no longer be in the ground. It would no longer be a threat to be spread further into the environment. So that's the plan. How's that plan going? The plan is not going well. So vitrification is a proven technology. U.S. Department of Energy has done it successfully in two sites in America, one at the Savannah River site in South Carolina one at a site called West Valley in New York. They've been successfully vitrifying waste in Europe. The problem with Hanford, one of many problems with Hanford in terms of vitrification, is the volume of the waste is much larger. The chemical complexity of the waste is much more difficult to deal with. So they're trying to, when you make vitrified glass, you need to have the right envelope, if you will, of, of waste, and glass forming materials. And certain chemicals in the waste are gonna change that formula. Certain radioactive materials are gonna change that formula. And the easiest way to describe the waste in Hanford's tanks is that every tank is a little bit different, or in some cases, a lot different. And in some cases, when you have a tank that's got a hard crust, there are great differences 10 feet away, 20 feet away, 30 feet away within that same tank. Mm. So. The complexity of vitrifying that waste successfully in the method by which the Department of Energy chose to follow makes it that much more difficult. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, here's your glass-making materials, here's your waste, put them together, and it creates glass. It, it, it's nuanced because it depends on what's in the tank, and in some cases we don't even know what's in the tank. You're adjusting things batch to batch to batch. At least they will be. They haven't yet because they're not vitrifying waste. So when the tripartite agreement was signed in 1989, 
there was a milestone in there to begin vitrifying Hanford's tank waste in 1999. So 10 19, years later, 1999. 1900s. 10 years later. In 1990, a year after the tri-party agreement was signed, the U.S. Department of Energy formally notified that their schedule was in trouble. And the schedule has been in trouble ever since in a lot of respects. So that effort kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, State of Washington has been pushing, I mean, everyone else has as well, but that's the regulatory authority for the tank waste treatment falls to the state of Washington. And they have been pushing relentlessly to get milestones, to get schedules, to get things done. So there have been a number of plans. It was supposed to be vitrification in 1999. Then it moved to, I think, 2007 and 2009 and 11 and 15 and and 21 and farther and farther. It, it seems that the longer we go, the farther out that vitrification possibility is for the most part. So right now, after two rounds of litigation and uh, consent decrees, the schedule for the treatment facilities to be fully operational producing vitrified glass is 2036. Are we going to meet that goal? I don't know. I don't know, frankly. And and it actually, it's it's far enough in the future that, that schedules, that, that things may change in terms of, of what the plan is. So in 2002, a contractor with the U.S. Department of Energy began constructing massive vitrification facilities, a whole complex of facilities called collectively the waste treatment plant, larger by far than any of the operating vitrification facilities in the world. And within a few years, there was a realization that perhaps the seismic safety requirements of these facilities had been underestimated, which shut down construction on major parts of the facility for nearly two years. They did determine that for the most part they had overbuilt and overdesigned and that they were within a good envelope in terms of safety for the seismic. Uh, within a few years, as construction continued, and this is a $690 million construction project each year. Each year? Each year. $690 million each year. Each year. That's being spent Ooh. on this. Several years into, after the resumption of work, there was a realization that some of the major design expectations, if you will, had not yet been proven out. And there was concern, and it came up through whistleblowers and and uh, a lot of other different things that were involved that basically challenged whether or not the waste treatment plant complex, particularly the most complicated facility, the pretreatment facility, could operate as designed and could operate safely as designed. And that eventually led to a shutdown of construction of that facility, uh, which is going on several years now as they do multi-year tens of millions of dollars of tests to prove out some of these different issues. So that has resulted in, again, this continued delay and pushback of the schedule. In the meantime, the U.S. Department of Energy is now pursuing kind of a shortcut, if you will, to begin limited operation of this waste treatment plant, dealing with a one waste stream that would be of a, eventually of lower radioactivity. So the intent was always this pretreatment facility, which has been the biggest problem, would separate all the tank waste into two different waste streams. 
So it'd be one that would have the highest concentration of radioactivity, was expected to be about 10% of the waste by volume. And then that would go to its own vitrification facility. The remaining 90% would have much, much lower levels of radioactivity. It also has its own vitrification facility, which is almost completely constructed. So the intent is, and what the Department of Energy has been pursuing the past couple of years, is that they will build a simplified pretreatment facility, which instead of doing all this very complex separation, it will just remove solid and it will separate cesium, which is one of the more highly radiation-emitting radioactive materials within the waste stream. So it will separate the cesium and the solids, and then that will go back into the tanks. This remaining waste stream will then go into the, the low-activity waste vitrification facility. The schedule to get that operating is 2023, and the U.S. Department of Energy so far is optimistic they can meet that schedule. So I think it's it's really telling how how much this changes year to year and day to day as they try to figure out this this cleanup plan. In just this week, it looks like a new report is out where they're saying maybe we should mix it with cement instead of glass. And this is I it would be interesting to look and see how many times that has been offered. So in at Savannah Riverside, they have been using grout, uh, a cement type material for some of their low activity waste. Whereas at Hanford, under agreement with the U.S. Department of Energy in the state of Washington, they would use vitrification. And the reason for that, very, very early on when that first 1989 tri-party agreement milestone for tank waste, there was an expectation that grout would be used for some of that waste at Hanford. And after some studies showed that the grout would not retain some of the very mobile and long-lived radioactive materials, the state pushed back and said grout is not acceptable. Because grout, it seems, would be more porous. Grout than, is more porous. Than glass. So it could, we just have a new problem 50 years down the road. That was a concern. And so at Hanford, they have been moving forward with the expectation that, well, vitrification would be the primary treatment option. Department of Energy in, in recent years has looked at some other things. I mentioned earlier there is a, a low-level vitrification facility. It is not of sufficient size to deal with all of the low-activity waste stream. And so for a number of years, there has been this uncertainty hanging out there in terms of how will the remainder of that waste stream be treated. And what the state of Washington said is whatever treatment that the Department of Energy proposes, it must be, the quote they use, as good as glass. So that has been the standard by which the state of Washington has looked at it. And Department of Energy has, on a numerous occasions, looked at grout, looked at some other technologies that do not perform as good as glass. So this new report by the, by the GAO suggested, and I have not read it all, just have glanced at it a little bit, it, it looked to me like it was not saying, don't vitrify what you're already planning to vitrify. It looked to me like it was saying that additional waste that you have not yet identified how to treat it, grout might be the answer. I would guess this has come up from GAO, from inspector generals, from folks looking to make this cheaper, faster, a dozen times 
in the last 30 years, if not more. There is always, always going to be somebody else who's going to say, we've got to find a way to do it cheaper and faster. Well, when you look at how long it's taken and how much money it, it's costing, it makes sense that somebody would, would want to ask those questions along the way. At the same time, you got to do it right or you're just going to have to do it again. Absolutely. And from Oregon's perspective, we have, we have, you know, obviously we want things to happen as quickly as they can. But we're looking at it from, from the long perspective. If, if it takes an extra year or five years or ten years initially to make sure you don't have impacts 100 years, 200 years, 300 years in the future, that's the way cleanup should go. The Hanford cleanup is a huge project, taking decades and billions of dollars. And we always have to be prepared for the unexpected, like this week's emergency. But we are making progress, and that progress is what we'll talk about in our next Hanford episode. Stay tuned for that and for a special bonus about this week's emergency at the Hanford site. See photos of the Hanford cleanup on our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov. Learn more about our work on our website, www.oregon.gov energy. All episodes of Grounded are available on soundcloud.com slash Oregon Energy. Subscribe to Grounded using your favorite podcast app, including iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And please rate us. Your rating helps others find our podcast so they can geek out about energy too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.